1: Hello everybody and welcome again to the Grace Saves All podcast. Today we welcome to the podcast Tony Goldsby-Smith. Tony is at the center of a very exciting movement in Australia called Gospel Conversations. Tony has had a very intense Christian experience and over the course of his life he has worked to integrate all of his experiences into a coherent understanding of the gospel which addresses more than just the destiny of individuals but of all of creation. So, Tony is a big thinker. His quest for broad horizons led him eventually into the paths of literature and poetry and into a fascination with the way people create and think. Then, his life took an unexpected turn into the arena of organizational design and into the founding of a very successful strategy firm called Second Road, which has helped businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies think and strategize more clearly about the future they desire. Eventually, Tony's quest for interaction with the brightest minds led him to be the original architect of Gospel Conversations, which has become a very interesting repository of fascinating interviews and reflections on a variety of topics, including how Christianity might claim a vision not just for the restoration of individual souls, but for the entire created order. You can find out about Gospel Conversations at their website, gospelconversations.com. There are a number of interesting articles there, as well as all of their podcasts. Or you can access the Gospel Conversations podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, SoundCloud. So, welcome, Tony Goldsby Smith, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Hi, David, from the Antipodes. (laughs) The 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 Antipodes. uh, Australia. Well, it's really a pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast. I I started listening to the Gospel Conversations podcast. about uh, a couple of years ago, and I've really just enjoyed uh, the various interactions and, and conversations that you've had on there. And one of the things I enjoyed the most was the podcast where you really talked about your life story, and that's what I wanted to do. And uh, wow, it, very compelling um, about your mom and just her her experience that that led her into Christian spirituality, and then. And then how that came to you and some of those early experiences. So could you just tell us some about that, about your mom and about growing up and how she shared her faith sure. with you?
2: Uh I think um understanding someone's family background uh is is often relevant. Uh I I I um Agree. For instance, I, I do I do speculate that Augustine's problems could be traced Christ, back to his family history, <laughs> um, and uh, as as you no doubt know, uh, I'm a, a vast admirer of the uh, Cappadocian Fathers, in particular Gregory of Nyssa, uh, and that family was, uh, in contrast, a family um, fashioned by women, including his elder sister Macrina. So, the role of a woman uh, in somebody's life, and I mean, not, not everybody has a positive shaping role of a woman um but uh but it was it was my mother who shaped me um i, I, I need to put in a plug for dad uh, he, well we're gonna yeah get, we're yeah. gonna get so, to Dad. Um, all i'd say about both of them was that i grew up under i suppose really they're old-fashioned parents but the best of parents in terms of they believed in me um they supported me and i had very little criticism in my life um, I I had benevolence, and um, they were right behind me. Uh, I, I think that's relevant to when we get around to universal salvation. But any, but but yeah. anyway, um, what happened with my mother was that uh, very early on, uh, she she grew up in a, in a high Anglican church where her experience of God was. Pretty arm's length and distant. Um, uh, it, mm-hmm. was, uh, it was it um, was ritualistic, if anything. Uh, she was a very attractive young lady, and people who knew her then you know, described her as um, superficial, I suppose. <laughs> uh, however, uh, she ran into a problem, which was which was my sister, as a baby, developed a terrible, um, pneumonia or not pneumonia, um, cough, uh, we're talking, Mm -hmm. you know, eight months old, 10 months old. Mum was a pediatric nurse and mum suspected a form of bronchitis, acute pediatric bronchitis, which, uh, proved, would prove fatal. Eventually the lungs just exhaust and the child dies. So, uh, um, Sharon, Sharon only coughed at night, um, and in the daytime, she was a healthy-looking baby. But eventually, a doctor came around to her house um, and looked at Sharon in the evening and confirmed mum's diagnosis. I think it was a Thursday evening. And said he'd come back next week to admit Sharon to hospital. So that, that night, mum reached out to <laughs> God and prayed uh, in desperation. And um, she, uh, Sharon never coughed again. Mum told me that you could you could set you could set your watch by Sharon beginning coughing. on a ten p.m. nine p.m. whatever. There was a time, and uh, and she just never yeah. coughed again. Uh, the doctor came back next week, and his words were, "They are not the same lungs." I looked at uh, on Thursday, so it was a pretty black and white miracle. And I often think about miracles, that God does them when there's a purpose, uh, but not just for show. And when you look at how our lives have unfolded, mm-hmm. beginning with this, you can see a real intervention of God. Well, that sent her on a two-year journey to find God.
1: Well, that's a, that strikes me that that's a work of restoration, that, the, that, this, that there was the restoration of the lungs, but there was also a larger spiritual Movement that was going on.
2: Correct. the The restoration of the lungs was just a um, a vehicle for a a vast purpose that was unfolding. Um, and um, so, eventually, uh, uh, you know, mum mum mum's search to find God was tormented. I must say, um, because she she thought of of what she had to do in obligatory terms. You know, perhaps I should be a missionary. Perhaps I should give up smoking. Perhaps I should do this. She had um, fairly traditional pietistic notions of whatever it would be to be a good person. And then eventually, one day, somebody gave her a book. It was actually called Mr. Jones, Meet the Master, uh, the conversion of, um, I think his name's Peter Marshall. But, but in it, she just found a simple gospel message, which is, that Jesus has taken your sins on his shoulders. And the person actually suggested what you should do is write down on a bit of paper your quote-unquote sins, the things that are bothering you, and then ask ask the Lord to wash them away and get that bit of paper and scrummy it up and throw it in the bin. And she did that. She told me she, she when she read this, she couldn't wait to get her little kids off to school um uh, and she got us out of the mm-hmm. house and then she did that and that was the beginning of her relationship with with Christ. Um,
1: okay, so it, you said that that also there was a time when you were in Fiji where there was a a woman that was working for your mother in, as a housekeeper and that there was some missing funds or something something yes, was missing. Yes, yes. In the um, house
2: in your, I will say just to sort of fill the picture in um before I get to that story soon after that um my mum came across a group called uh, i think they childhood evangelism who believed little kids can come to know the lord and uh okay. they had a thing called the wordless book which is just colors I, I mean i've still got a copy of it here um you know black for sin white for holiness and red for the blood of jesus <clears> and <throat> so on. and she went through the the gospel with me and and um when I was 5 and she said, "Well, do you want to accept Jesus as your savior?" And I said, "Yes." And she told me she had enormous, both doubts and resentment. Like I, I spent two tormented years coming to this, and this kid's going to get there in thirty minutes. Um, <laughs> and how can a five-year-old? How can a five-year-old possibly have a, uh, you know, transaction with God that's genuine? Um, well, the answer is not at right. the five-year-old; it's in God. And, and so that was the beginning of my journey uh, with uh, with the Holy Spirit and and God. What then happened was very soon after that, we moved to Fiji, which was sort of providential. Uh, providential because in Fiji at that time, 1950s, uh, all the evangelical Christians clustered around an open brethren group, and and mum found them, um, and uh, we got some great Bible teaching then. But uh, back in those days, of course, you know, the expats in Fiji were a patrician class, pretty we'd look back on it and say that they had a, a sort of hierarchical attitude to the Fijians. Um, uh, mm-hmm. It was patronizing, but well-meaning. Well, we, and we had servants and, and uh, we had a servant girl, Fijian servant girl. Mum became aware that things were going missing, you know, money, a bit of jewelry and so on. And for good reason, she, suspected strongly that the this girl was stealing from her. However, whenever mum came across a problem, she would just join, join in prayer with the Lord. She she wouldn't just act. Um, she would pray. Yeah. And she prayed. And, uh, Lord, what should I do? And as she prayed, the Lord gave her a picture of this girl's situation. Quite poor, uneducated, struggling. And so, Mum decided under the influence of the Holy Spirit she would actually not uh, raise this topic with the girl. She would raise the girl's salary. She said nothing about the theft. She just said, I've decided to pay you more money. Uh, I think the girl knew that she, you know, perhaps that she was uh, being suspected. But whatever the case, that was absolutely transformative um, in, in this young lady and um that was one of the many examples I had of grace at work
1: um, in the mind of my mother. Yeah, you talk about that—that that she had believed in the governance she, of grace. She, her
2: total framework was—I mean, grace wasn't. She didn't. She didn't have a gospel framework in which you know grace occupies twenty-five percent or something. I mean, grace was the boundaries of the page. Yeah, uh, she loved the Lord uh, as her husband, as her heavenly bridegroom. All who knew her, um, I mean, I began by saying, for instance, that she was a fairly superficial person. Um, when we went to Fiji, uh, my father worked for the, the major economic entity in Fiji called WR Carpenter. Um, they were the big trading house, and um, so mum and dad worked with the junior carpenters who were... You know, going to inherit the company, and I, I years years later, I spoke to Carol Carpenter um, at Mum's seventieth about Mum in those days, and she just said, "Your mother was a trailblazer." She said, "She said your mother made huh. friends with the Fijians. We were all aloof. Your mother was twenty years ahead of the time." Uh, well, that all came out of grace, and and just to go further in terms of the impact of small things, I, I used to play with a boy who was older than me. I was about seven, and he was about 12, and he was a Fijian boy, and he was a rascal, absolute rascal, and, uh, you know, we were, it was just a a Huckleberry in time to grow up, Uh, it was beautiful, I loved it, Um, but anyway, this boy was wild, and um, he he was the child of a single mum, which in Fiji in those days was pretty well um, a social death sentence, he wasn't going to go anywhere in his life, I I I witnessed to him. This was the beginning of my evangelistic career. I was uh, I was eight, and uh, he 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 made fun of the gospel and said, "Oh, the virgin birth was just a fiction." And I came home and burst into tears and told mum about this. And uh, so mum started talking to him. His name was Tani. He eventually gave his life to Christ. Uh, very soon after that, we left Fiji. Um, my mum was really worried what was going to happen to this boy. You know, just little seed of faith in his heart, and yet socially nothing's you know, going to mm-hmm. work. And um, my father uh, agreed to pay to send him on a Bible camp. That was the last we knew of him, and we always wondered what, what happened to him. Many, many years later, by which time I was early 30s, out of the blue, I got a phone call in Sydney, and it was uh, Natani, sorry, Natani, is his name, not Santani. Natani. And I, hi, hi, Tony. This is Natani. I'm passing through Sydney. I'm about to go. Uh, I'm studying in Sweden, doing a master's of of, of uh, navigational engineering in Sweden. And I just wondered if we could catch up. And I, I just thought, like, this is am I imagining this telephone call? Like I I always knew, even <laughs> even if it was Natani, he was just a tremendous liar. And I just thought that this is a even if it is him, he's making something up. Uh nothing happened. He didn't have time. That was the end of it. About then seven or eight years later, I went to Fiji and ran some workshops for the World Health Organization. And a friend of mine was uh working with the World Health Organization. And I, I said to him, I, I I just wonder uh about this fellow I knew, you know. His name's Natani Sukunivalu. I can remember that. Um no, he'd never heard of him, never heard of him. Asked his friend, no, no he didn't he Didn't ring a bell. So, oh, that's a pity, dead end. Next day, I, I, I was in his study, I kid you not, and I looked up and there was one business card pinned up on his wall, which I hadn't seen yesterday. It either wasn't there yesterday or I didn't see it. And that was Natani Sukunivalu, the CEO of the Fijian TAFE College of 15,000 people. And oh my goodness! I couldn't believe it i re- i I found out subsequently the next day when I went to the workshop with forty people that he was the CEO of the largest educational institution. He later became the Fijian Minister for education, and that he was a role model in Fiji of You know, bad boy made good, what a Fijian boy could do. It was true. He did go to Sweden. He did get his master's of navigational engineering, whatever it was, in Fiji. He was actually the head of the student (laughs) unit at Stockholm University or something. And it was just. And so back to me seeing this business card, I rang him up. And he couldn't get around fast enough. He was leaving the next day to go to a conference in New Zealand. And we just both hugged each other, and he said, I remember to all of his family had become Christians. He was a Bible teacher at church. Um, he he just said, I remember to this day the songs your mother taught me. Um, uh, so, you know, that a great example of how this little life
1: of grace and faith spread into a broad,
2: vast social
1: influence. Right. Well, it also strikes me that this is an example of Grace bringing order out of Absolutely. chaos. You know that that both these people were in these chaotic, orderless, uh, random worlds, and then this grace came, and opened a door for them, and and that was so, and that was so powerful, and and so there was a lot. You so I, I know that you understood that there was a lot of power that was a lot of spiritual power that was going on, and as a young person, you were very involved with this, but then also there was something that was shallow about it as well. And so as you got into your later teenage years, young young adult, you were interested in some broader questions that you didn't think were really being addressed by at least the, the way the faith had been presented Correct. to
2: you. Correct. Uh, I think that the traditional evangelical gospel is pretty shallow, and it doesn't take a bright person long to get their minds around it. I speculate, by the way, you know, Bob Dylan became a Christian some time back, and uh, he, whether he threw it away or not, I don't know, but he certainly re- retreated from it. And I suspect he had the same problem. Um, you know, the what I call the traditional four spiritual laws, which starts with, you know, you're a sinner, everyone's a sinner. Um, and then moves on to, you know, Jesus died on the cross to forgive us our sins. And um, the resurrection is some kind of exit door strategy. It's not actually intrinsic to to the process. Um, if you believe on Jesus, he'll wash your sins away. And when you die, you'll go to heaven. Well, it doesn't take very long to get that, but there's also not very many places to go with it. And and it, it also presented me, the more I went on with what I would call a very shallow anthropology. I mean, it seemed that the sum of it all was, we're sinners. Whereas my mind was, oh, it wasn't an academic child. I mean, I did very well, but I was more interested in sport. Um, but, but I was inquisitive and I loved big literature, particularly poetry. And amongst novels, my favourite was Joseph Conrad. And, and um, amongst poetry, my favourite was T.S. Eliot. And I just love the way they seem to, their minds seem to go out into the gray areas of reality, human existence, the cosmos, um, the paradoxes of life. So I had that world of great interest. But then when I went back to church, I I, I felt that I was being given a very uh, minimalist cardboard, cardboard cutout sort of uh, set of prescriptions for life that... There's just a huge gap between the two. And intellectually, I much preferred, uh, uh, and even spiritually, I much preferred this broader landscape. But I was stuck because I thought it's a dualistic choice.
1: Right. Yeah, so, the, when, in, so when you talk about your story, though, what I thought was interesting was you didn't just immediately decide to reject the sort of the, the, the spirituality that was sort of shallow. You actually dove into it, tried to dive into it, maybe even as hard as you possibly could. And so you did really ex- what I would think as extreme kind of evangelism. I did. I did. Um, and,
2: but I should mention one thing just prior to that. I, I did pray a prayer. And so the period of my life I'm talking about I'm, was 16, 17 years old. Um, um, I had a prayer. Mm-hmm. I can still remember that prayer because I think God does answer prayers, big ones. Um, and the prayer was, and, and I think God understood it better than me, and I want reality. That was my prayer. Um, I want reality. I wanted a sense of not a dualistic God, but God everywhere. And and I was also rejecting mm-hmm. um, the experience I uh, had, which was this hills and valleys experience where you'd, you, you might get emotionally hyped up at, on a Sunday or at a, at a conference and then you had ordinary life after that. And that hills and valley experiences, I just thought was unstable. And I wished I had a God who was everywhere.
1: Yeah, so that dualism, a non-dualistic, dualistic dualistic would be a God who is here but is not there uh with those people not with with these people not with those people close to us when we do right and far well, it was away also when we do
2: it was that but i wasn't thinking of it in those terms it was more a dualism that was cosmology cosmological in other words i had a religious zone in which god could work but then there's this other zone um called life you know monday to friday life mm-hmm. that I couldn't see how God applied in and uh, into that zone and was was Lord of that zone. So, so that that's how I describe the the, the, the dualism. Um, I think most people live in that world. By the way, um, if you live in that world, there's one or two ways you can go, and one way you can go is is probably into an extreme form of fundamentalism, uh, which is what happened to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I was up for grabs. Um, it kind of scares me because I think a lot of young people are up for grabs. They're very they're zealous they're looking for you know passionate causes and I was in a sense um, uh, easy prey for for some kind of fundamentalist story to grab hold of me and that's what happened. We went to a very fundamentalist church I won't go into the the background of it but in a way it was it could be criticized as being a bit cultish but it did nothing more than push the evangelical Gospel to its logical limits. So, for instance, at,
1: so those people, if the people weren't saved, it was because correct. you hadn't witnessed correct. to them. So, your blood, their yeah, blood exactly was on that your Ezekiel hands. Your passage. Um, so, so uh,
2: was, 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 let's just say it tormented me, might be the best way that I'd describe it.
1: And you said that it wasn't, so you said all this, you had all this responsibility, but you were having very correct. little well, success. I
2: now, now I'm at university. Sydney University
1: um, mm-hmm.
2: and of course in you know this new this new uh, way of thinking had the secular environment as the enemy you mm-hmm. know um, so we we, we right. believe we should witness it we had this little tract called the second death you'd like that David the second death and it was all about judgment and hell and we carried great wads of it with us and everywhere we went in any circumstance, this is embarrassing to think about now. We felt we had to had to hand tracks out, so we'd go on a train, and we we got into open air preaching. We'd get up on a train and preach. We preached on the mm-hmm. on the uh, front lawn of Sydney University. It was I hated it. I'm an introvert. You know, it's an embarrassing thing to do. You know, Sydney is not the kind of place where open. Air, I mean, it might be different if you're in other countries in the world. People might accept this, but. And my poor old father, who mm-hmm. was uh, not a Christian then, or certainly didn't call himself one, was he was lovely about it. He just said to me, Tony, he said, I know you think this, is, he said, I just don't think the marketing campaign is working for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was right. So it was fruitless, utterly fruitless. I mean, there's one exception. We came across it, one guy who'd, who'd been miraculously converted and uh, he he sort of joined us up and he became a friend for life. But apart from that, Zero, nothing. And it was in, uh, it was, uh, we had this phrase, uh, outwardly rejoicing, inwardly screaming. Um, And I think that's true of a lot of this, uh, you know, this, uh, we're very, very enthusiastic, sincere people push this traditional gospel to its limits. It creates tremendous uh, internal tension, which you can't acknowledge um, because you think it's wrong to feel that way.
1: Well, so this, this, this takes you to a, um, a breaking and burnout. And this is the time when you meet your wife and, and your energies really then go into the relationship with her and the beginning of a, of a family. And yes, and I mean, those that was things. terribly
2: significant. It was, I must say, uh, the prelude to that was that me and, Several of my close friends uh, left this fundamentalist church, and we did it because we started reading Romans. Uh, and we had we had a sense okay. that something was going on in Romans that was bigger and better than this church was espousing. We were actually excommunicated from it, so we got the dark side of um, fundamentalist rejection. Um and uh, we'd also burned our bridges with other ch- churches. We thought all churches were pretty shallow, so we, we were left in no man's land. And in that time, I met, uh, through that small group of friends, I met my wife, Anne, whose whose background was um, much more working class than mine. She's from country Australia and also uh, a Roman Catholic. That's quite important because she was a very, very sincere, very thoughtful person. I mean, she came from a rural environment. So if you're in America, it's kind of like South, you know, not very intellectual. And uh, whilst her mm-hmm. family might be out at the local club, she was back at home reading War and Peace by Tolstoy or Portrait of a Lady um, by Henry James. You know, she's a very, very thoughtful young, young woman. Um uh, very different to me. I'm, uh, how could I describe myself? Partly because I've, partly personality, partly upbringing, I'm kind of stable. I'm okay with things. I, uh, you know, I'm charming in the worst sense of the word. I, you know, confident. Life's easy if you like that in a way. Um, Anne's not like that. Anne's more of a troubled soul. And she was the sort of person who put the dead, what we call the dead cat on the table. Um, I I can remember to this day, she said to me one day, it's all words, Tony, it's words, words, words about the way we're talking about the gospel. It's not doing anything for me, you know, and we knew she was right. We just didn't want to say it. And so that began a lifelong conversation, um, extremely fruitful and challenging. Um, But uh, we got married, got married young, um, Quickly had kids. We had four kids, um, four kids in our twenties, and they all came close together. So four kids under the age of five. So now we're plunged into domestic life and all the challenges of it. And um, by this time, I'd become a school teacher, Um, and so we had this very domestic scaled life. We didn't go to church. Uh, Me and my friends were were, were then what you could call the dechurched group. Um, Still very much believing in the Lord. Still inquiring, but um, I now began to, right. I think, discover and explore God in the nuances and details of just getting through family life.
1: Well, as I heard your story, you said that you eventually discovered the power of an orientation of radical grace and unconditional yeah, love. and
2: I mean, that came about through as as a lot of my wor- uh, work and thoughts have through my conversations with Anne and and her life. I mean, Anne is somebody who is you know a better person than me in many ways. In that she's enormously got a heart for those who are out of the way and cast aside. Whereas I just I'm I'm a social. I go for the top. You know, uh, um, I always read with I squirm when I read the story in James, you know, about what what about the wealthy man entering your church? I think, oh, James must be looking at me. But okay. Anne's, Anne is the sort of person <laughs> who James would have loved. She would have gone for that poor, um, you know, uh, slave. She, the, the, right. Uh, but, but equally she was, if I could say it this way, um, tormented by, as a lot of people are, by a sense of unworthiness and guilt and... Um, You know, we uh, we had a lot of we had these four kids, and she's a volatile person. So, so she would often get angry with us or me. And uh, I, I think at one stage she was probably suffering from postnatal depression. She and and she did have an ectopic pregnancy that uh, plunged her into some real challenges. And and I, so if if you'd have looked at our lives uh, then, and just do what a lot of us Christians do. We're so pharisaical, and so and and did a sort of a assessment of Tony versus Anne. Oh, Tony, he's a very good person. You know, he's very calm. And oh, look at that. You know, she got cranky and you know threw the eggs at him, um, which he did one day. Um, uh, oh, how bad <laughs> is that? And and I was aware that this was going on, and I would pray. So look, look, Lord, you know did you just see what Anne did to me? I hope you saw that because it was really unfair. And, you know, and so I was having this, con- I was going to the bar of heaven in this kind of forensic thing, arguing. Like, like your, mo- like your yeah,
1: mother except had shown I was, you.
2: Except, except, I've got to say through all this, my mother absolutely loved Anne and, and, and Anne and my mother were so close. And so my mother did not have the pharisaical attitude to Anne that I had. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) You know what, uh, David? I was just aware the heavens were brass. I just were aware the heavens were brass. God was not listening to me. And then it sort of occurred to me, uh, so if you finish all that, Tony, um, can we now get on to you? Uh, If I treated the world the way you, you you know, this kind of um, tit-for-tat, right-wrong, if I treated the world that way, Tony, um, where would you be? And I just became aware of, I, I had this meta-processing. Of, wow, I'm a Pharisee. This evangelical gospel has turned me into a Pharisee. And, and as a Pharisee, I'm a shallow person. Mm-hmm. And I have no understanding of unconditional love. I don't know what it's like. And uh, then I began to get a broader view. I can always remember one day, I was taught by my one of my four beautiful children, Peter. He was perhaps eight at the time, and we'd had a fight. Anne and I—we were on a holiday, and it was all going wrong, you know. So we had a fight. When we had a fight, the kids would just kind of vamoose and go off. And not Pete—he was a quiet little fellow. So he and I went for a walk, and he's a—he is a man of few words. He's walking beside me. Silence. For, quite a while. Then from nowhere, this little eight-year-old says, dad, how long is it since you last took Mum on a holiday? And I just thought, wow, he's seen it all. Yeah, I've got this successful cruisy life. My poor wife is grappling with things and, and I'm not loving her. I'm not buying her flowers. You know, I began to see, well, if you really want to diagnose, say what Anne is going through uh, at that time, not, uh, um, well, where does sleeplessness come into it? Where does depression come into it? And if you want to start getting under sin tone, how are you nourishing her with grace and love? So, you know, I'm being, I'm being very candid about this because um, this was grace at work in my attitude to my family. And there, there are other, many other circumstances where primarily in the family, the Lord essentially showed me the cross as the evidence of unconditional love, and that was the only law I had to live by, and it was a long, long way from me.
1: You also say in your story that it was during this time that you began to take the Sermon on the Mount not just as hyperbole, but as the revelation that unconditional love wins in the end and is the operating model of the universe. So something big was happening there's something transformational oh, completely.
2: Is going I, I am the sort of person who I'm not content to just have a personal, you know, breakthrough on something. I elevate it to a theology. I say, I, I found out something philosophical almost here. And what I began to see, uh, mm-hmm. including now in the work I was doing, is this principle that I was learning in the family of let's call it unconditional love. Because what I began to see was that this got into my radical grace. I began to see for instance, Paul works on this in Romans. I mean, most people misread Romans all over the shop, but um, one of the misreadings of Romans is the seven into eight misreading where people were saying, oh, you know, seven was Paul's existential grappling with you know sin, the good that I would, I don't do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's some kind of... Ke- Holy Spirit-type breakthrough into victory in chapter 8. That's how people read it. Well, that's just rubbish. It's not what the text is saying at all. Um, Without going into too much detail, I I recognize that chapter 7, he is merely laying out the limitations of the law. Doesn't get you anywhere Mm -hmm. is what he's saying. Let me give you you a semi-autobiographical case study of how the law, actually, it's meant for good and it produces bad. Mm -hmm. Very ironically and paradoxically, what produces good is love what my mother did to the servant girl. Um, It created righteousness Mm -hmm. in that girl. Now, in a way, if you'd have looked at the situation um, from a forensic lens, you would have said, no, 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 actually, that girl should have been brought to account and suffered for what she did. But I began to see that in the long game, it's actually love that creates stable people, expansive people, And when that love is unmerited, it's even more effective and powerful. But of course, at the time of showing it, it's weak. And that's where I saw in the Sermon on the Mount that we have the Lord of the universe who has all power having this paradigm shift to utterly inverse power and say, ironically, I'm going to govern the universe by what appears at the time to be enormous weakness of
1: unconditional love. I just got chill bumps. (laughs) It is. It's so so counterintuitive. I once spent a year and a half slowly, slowly, slowly preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And so I couldn't skip anything. And I decided that I would really focus even harder on the really difficult passages. And I remember having to do a sermon where I only allowed my text to be for that day. Do not resist Mm -hmm. the evil person. Submit. Submit in love to the evil person. And I remember just sitting and thinking about that, that the most powerful human being who ever lived, lived a life submitting in love to the evil person and then changed, and then brought this radical grace, this radical power Correct. into the and, world.
2: And just to take this into a wider area, this of course influenced Gandhi. Gandhi's whole, yes. I mean, he overturned the British Empire. In India, you know, with, with, with his passive revolution. And we all know that story, and there's, there's multiple layers to it. But perhaps what a lot of people don't realize is where Gandhi got his ideas from, which was in South Africa when he was a younger man and from Christians. It was straight from the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, but he certainly believed Jesus was probably the wisest person who ever lived. So he implemented um, at, at, at a level of social change. This truth of the Sermon on the Mount.
1: Yeah, it's funny that that sort of, in a way, the the Christianity that at least I grew up around in America considered, seemed to be considered that Jesus was, he came and lived 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 a sinless life so he could make a perfect sacrifice of himself. But he really was pretty. He was too idealistic about what he was in the Sermon on the Mount and those types of things. You can't really take those words seriously. So, you know, he wasn't really he. He was just too idealistic for this world. So we can't really follow the Sermon yeah, well, on the Mount.
2: Another example of following the Sermon on the Mount is Nelson Mandela. You know, the truth and reconciliation process that he went through with, with uh, I forget the name of the the uh, final white on clock. Uh, so I can't remember his name, but in Mandela Mandela's forgiveness, you know, his not, having an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was an enormous transitional blessing to mm-hmm. South Africa. So the point is now I don't need to, and I don't know where Mandela stood in his faith. And that's, that's actually not necessary. A guy called as you probably, I don't know if you've read or heard of Tom Holland's book, Dominion.
1: No, no. Tom yeah, Holland. Uh, Dominion. It's doing
2: the rounds. It's, it's a big seller. Um, he's a British historian. He's an agnostic. He's an agnostic. And um, like a lot of people nowadays, um, Edwin Judge, uh, f- for instance, on the Gospel Conversation podcast explains this in vast detail, that he's an iconic p- professor of ancient history. But Tom Hollands essentially wrote the book because he said, look, I'm an agnostic, sometimes an atheist, um, definitely not a Christian, uh, discovered to my horror that everything I believe in that's valuable came from Jesus Christ. And it's not just me, it's the whole world. And so he wrote this book called Dominion to explain this penetrating influence socially, politically, and in terms of values of the man from Nazareth. It's a great book. Hmm.
1: It reminds me, too, that Martin Luther King sometimes uh, people said, you know, were criticized him about just being passive in the face of this injustice. And he said, actually, we're not being passive we are actively loving people and and none of our none of none of our nonviolent strategies work if they aren't expressions of love if you take the love out of it he said it's the love that is tra- that's transformative it's when people know that you're loving them Correct. they can feel it and he said and and that yeah, changes and, that changes and if things. you kind of go
2: forward as to how this was preparing me for a a broader theology of cosmic redemption. If you think about it, if you think about it, it does seem pretty fragile uh, and precarious. When you get into a real circumstance, it feels really precarious to not resist evil with evil. and 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 having said that, I mean, you, you'd yeah, you'd need to work it through. I mean, I'm not saying you never confront people or whatever, but let's just take that as a principle. It seems really precarious because the bad guys are going to win um i'm going to get trodden on etc however if you believe mm-hmm. that the end of all things will be providential and the triumph of the good it's not you just remove the precariousness at all
1: well that is something that you eventually that you eventually get to in your story but i wanted to talk a little bit right now about how you are you have something an experience of called the burning that you call the burning bush, where you really begin to see that that this truth about grace and about love and about transformation is not ju- it's for everything. It it applies every it it applies everywhere, and and you you begin to see how it applies in in education, and then your father. Uh, tells you that he thinks it has a business application, and then so you you eventually find yourself moving into the air into business and nonprofits and even governmental agencies with all of these ideas sort of boiling in the background. Absolutely. Uh, so, what happened was um,
2: I was a school teacher for my first career at one of the top private schools mm-hmm. in Australia, and I taught English literature, but I also taught a thinking skills program. I, I became somewhat appalled by the curriculum. Every curriculum in the world, uh, it tends to be siloed. You know, and the silos are defined by subject matters. You do economics, you do history, you do mathematics, you do science, and and there's no way that we had any connection between them. And I I began to think, well, we're just not teaching these kids to think. And if I teach them to think, they can apply that seamlessly across all these areas and the kind of thinking that I was particularly interested in is thinking if you say how can I teach anyone to think it's a really good question because thinking is going on in our heads how can you teach anybody that the answer is actually simple mm-hmm. um, it's one word there is one technology of thought and that technology of thought is language so if I play with your language I play with your mind and I began, I, I'm, I've am i always in my life been fascinated by uh, right brain thinking, as it's loosely called, um, which Alistair McGilchrist is probably the, the most articulate exponent of. Um, his famous uh, book, it's actually too long to read, but um, it, it, it's uh, The Master <laughs> and His Emissary. Um, loosely speaking, the right brain is the non-visual Sorry, is the visual, creative, uh, non-verbal part of the brain. The left brain is more black and white and detailed. Actually, I began to be fascinated by this. I mean, I, uh, we have two brains, not one. And it's not like we, we have two lungs. All they do is double capacity. It's not like that with the right and left hemisphere of the brain. Right. They don't double capacity. They're like two vast operating systems that are simultaneous. Every single problem we look at, we look at through two vast operating systems that simultaneously talk to each other. This is actually Trinitarian if you want to get into it Um, because it's the problem and there's my two brains looking at the problem and they're all connected. Um, Now, we haven't understood a lot about the difference between the right and left brain until the last 20 or 30 years. I won't get into that story, but I... I began to discover this while I was teaching, and what I knew instinctively is that pretty well all of our tools are left-brained. And by the way, Tom Wright says that's a problem with theology. It is a problem with universal redemption, uh, salvation too. That that the traditional way of thinking is very left-brained. It's another way of looking at it. Very, you know, it's almost too literal and black and white. Now, I began to be interested in right brain tools, because that's where the geniuses live. Geniuses see synthetic holes, which is what the right brain do. And the way you do that is you use diagrams. And that's, I think, in pictures. So that's the course I created. It was a thinking with pictures course uh, that I taught to 16 and 17 year olds um, right across the school with the help of the headmaster. It was life changing for many of them, um, essentially on how to write an essay or solve a problem. And by the way, as I'm, I was doing this. I've got to tell you, I'm thinking I'm walking on holy ground. Don't know quite how to explain it, but I think I am.
1: You're on, you're on the, you're on the path. I think it was also interesting too that you started that. It's almost like problem solving through art, or there's there's this artistic expression that's going on. It is, and um,
2: it's it's. Uh, it's not just problem solving. That's a word I, st- I threw out eventually because there's a, 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 up above this, there's a okay. philosophy of life you, um, um, and um, problem solving is, is the most traditional way of describing critical thinking, but it's negative if you think about it because like, it's defined by the word problem. Uh-huh. If there's no problems, well, I've got nothing to do. Okay, well, That's pretty boring. Um, you think about your life and the things you've done in your life, like how many of them are, ad- are adequately defined by the word problem solving. Art is about self-expression. It's a positive thing. And um, this is this is closer to creativity and this is closer to design, which is where uh, where I went in my thinking. Anyway, I had this successful educational program at school and my father, that's when my father looked at it. He was a businessman. And said, business needs what you've got. They can't think and they can't communicate Was his succinct summary of the problems in business. Um, he was a fairly senior businessman and he introduced me to some of his senior friends who were equally intrigued. I mean, business is the biggest funder of education and thinking in the world, much more than the academic system. Uh, they just spend billions on it. Hmm. and they're, And top leaders are really interested in how you solve problems or how you are creative and they these guys loved. i mean i'm talking about very senior managing directors they love talking to me about so so i decided to leave teaching and plunge into it i I didn't work for anyone else i just plunge i didn't know what i was doing skating on thin ice and seeing if i could move into this world of giving some kind of advice to people it was pretty precarious we had four kids Uh, i was early 30s um Back in those days, you could cash in your superannuation in Australia, which I did. Otherwise, we couldn't have done it. At my school, people were worried about me financially. Mm-hmm. Um, the headmaster was very supportive. He thought I was a phenomenal teacher, but he said, Tony, you've got to do this. And I wanted to go part-time. He said, I'm not letting you go part-time. You've got to give your all to this to see if it's going to work. Uh, so, uh, so we, So off I went. Now, I was... Definitely, I mean, I was tugged by this. I had a sense of calling, but I still had this dualistic mindset, and most of the people around me had the same view of me. You know, it was like Tony, if with your skills and abilities, you should become a minister of religion, or you should become a, you know, study theology, and they could have understood that if I'd have said I'm leaving teaching to become, uh, you know, go to seminary or become a theologian. They they could have understood that. Mm-hmm. but to actually say i'm going into the under the dark side you know i'm going out to help corporates it's like scratch your head and i had a similar i had a similar you know cognitive right, dissonance yeah. about it um but, but anyway right. um it was, prior to the burning bush one i i had this uh, experience in church where i was in this dualistic mindset and my Bible, I was bored by the sermon, and my Bible fell open at the story of Joseph in Genesis, and I read it. And for the first time, I just felt God was in the room talking to me. And for the first time, the most obvious thing about that book, that story, hit me and it had never occurred to me before, which is that God called Joseph to reform Egypt, not Israel. He called him to be, if you read it carefully, he was just a phenomenal consultant, Joseph. He was, you read, he was brilliant. He was a brilliant administrator and planner and communicator um, working for Pharaoh, working for the king. And the Lord instantaneously, uh, two things just hit me. One, you will talk to kings like a Joseph in Egypt as a promise, which proved true. The other one was, I just realized, wow, my God has an agenda way beyond me. It was a bit like the unconditional love paradigm shift. I thought, hang on, if I was God, I would never have called Joseph to lead Egypt. I don't have that. So God's doing something. He's got a project bigger than what I think. That set a life journey for me, which now I don't think that way, but I did then. Uh, I like to feel I've Got closer to God's project of cosmic redemption, but in in terms of then the attitude you've got to have if you want to play this game, there's two great stories from 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 the Old Testament that speak about this. So one is the burning bush story. Now the burning bush story, as you probably know, was enormously important to the Patristics, and it has been in my life too. Here's Moses. He's out in the desert. He's in no man's land. Um, he's got no home. He's a refugee in modern terminology. And as far as he's concerned, mm-hmm. God is not anywhere here. And then a bush burns, and I like to think of it that this is probably literally true that the nuclear energy of this bush, bush was revealed. We all know that there's the nuclear energy of that bush literally would have been explosive if you know if you wanted to play with a molecular configuration of the bush. That's what would happen. It, it contains vast energy. It's literally true. But mm-hmm. it, it shone. And he saw the glory of God in the bush. And I knew in an instant, and this has been the paradigm of my life, he, God holds all things together by the word of his power. Not some things, not church, all things. And if you can't see him, it's your fault. But his journey for you is to see the glory within everywhere. people systems, circumstances. So that burning bush became the agenda really for my life to d- to discover is a word we like to use, God's presence everywhere.
1: Well you use there's a word that you use mm. a lot, cosmos. A lot of people think of that as an astronomy word, but you're using it in in a, a very well, holistic
2: and and I would
1: recommend
2: to people who want to pursue this to go to gospel conversations. Look at the speakers. Go to Edwin Judge, the man that I mentioned, who's one of the great intellectuals of the ancient world, a Christian man. He's in his 90s now. And um, he goes into that word cosmos in the first talk in depth. I, I interview him three times. Cosmos, actually, the Greek word origin is nothing to do with astrology or physics, it's to do with beauty. The, the word what, I mean, we still get cosmetic, you know, cosmetic as in cosmetic jewelry for show. But the root of the word is harmony and beauty, which they then applied to the arrangement of of the universe. So, if we wanted to get, you know, a possible modern translation, might be the beautiful arrangement
1: of all things. Cosmos is the beautiful yes, arrangement. It's not of merely all things.
2: physical properties. It's the it's the fact that there's this integrated harmony in all things. So that that was the Greek view and it's got a lot to commend it um what happened with me um was that as i got in more and more into corporate life i got more and more into innovation creativity and strategy and what's happening here if you're doing a a truly visionary strategy or truly visionary work of innovation is you are creating you are inaugurating a new reality literally and i i don't think it's unfair to say or there'd be very few people in the world who had anything like the cumulative experience that I and my firm had as a particularly as a believer to orchestrate uh, participate in guide the creative process on a large scale over decades
1: well and you, t- you also talk about in your journey that you you go to Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon University and you take up the Nuremberg chair of design, and but that the, your mentor there said that he needed you to talk about the spirituality that was involved in your thinking and, and to not hide that, correct uh, to not so, hide that away.
2: Um, to give
1: the right background to that story,
2: I, I just need to explain that my mind, because of my work, and now we're looking at me in my 30s, I suppose, and early 40s was going more and more to Genesis 1 as the archetypal description of the creative process. I spoke, for instance, at a large designers conference in Vancouver, the two or 3,000 people there, and I was the last speaker. And I talked about the creative process and I finished by quoting, well, I said, look, this is what I, th- I still think is the best description of the creative process in all literature it's from the story in genesis and and i quoted the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of god hovered over the waters and i explained it a little bit but what i was doing was locating the creative process in god and human beings being unique In participating in the creative process. I also, by the way, speculate that Satan and and the angels do not have the power to create. That's a speculation I've got. Um, Because I think intention and the ability to inaugurate a new reality should give us goosebumps. We're playing God. And that's a phrase I used in my, you know, large corporate. Guys, we're going to create. We're going to play God. We're going to inaugurate a new reality. Get used to this. This is a stunning thing. I want you to be stunned by our capacity to inaugurate a new reality. So I had these, let's just say religious instinct. Uh, no, no, my, my, my sense of the gospel was growing. But in God's providence, in God's providence, I, I didn't have the intellectual architecture um, to support the game I was playing largely because like most people I think in the Western world I was still under the shackles of the scientific method. I mean l- large corporations that's what everyone you know it's scientism, um, it's um, empirical reasoning, evidence-based reasoning ask anyone to articulate the the process they won't articulate the creative process they'll articulate the analytical process but I didn't have the philosophical argumentative framework to house this way of thinking in. Um, in God's providence, uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon, um, which, as you would know, is a one of the top universities in the world. Um, Carnegie Mellon is remarkable for its blend of the arts and the sciences. You know, they invented half the internet, uh, cognitive science, engineering, they're brilliant, but equally their drama school is one of the most You know, influential drama schools in the world, uh, oldest ones, and their design school is the oldest design school in America. So I met Richard Buchanan is the man's name, who's really the guru of design thinking in the world. Uh, Where Richard is unusual is that he's a philosopher. His his degrees, PhDs in philosophy, very importantly from uh, from Chicago under a man called Richard McKeon. Who some b- people believe solved philosophical problems that no one else solved. In, 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 he he did what's bringing rhetoric, the new rhetoric into uh, into into philosophy. Dick was like a prophet. He he just understood me. He and I just clicked. This is nineteen ninety. He created. He provided the intellectual framework out of which I was able to then uh, do my PhD and structure my theory of two roads to truth, which I won't go into now. Although it's all. Ro- Relevant, everything's relevant to this story.
1: Well, it, well your, your firm it's is correct. called second, yeah, it's right?
2: Because the, uh, the, the highlight is David, the Western world of my PhD, and is that the Western world brought the wrong thinking system from Aristotle. Um, he created uh, analytics in his book, The Posterior Analytics, which is uh, the foundation for what became the Enlightenment, evidence based reasoning. It's all about the syllogism. Um, what people don't know is that he restricted the use of that toolkit to a certain domain of problem where things, his words are, well, my, I think they're my words, I don't think he's, uh, things cannot be other than they are, i.e. nature. I can't change nature, so I analyse it. But there's this other big area, he said, far more interesting, and the phrase was one of our mottos in Second Road, where things can be other than they are, which is where human beings shape the future and make decisions, which is what we do for most of our life. Now, if you think about it, you can't actually shape the future by analysis because the future doesn't exist. Uh, if it doesn't exist, you've got to shape it. You've got to make it. And this is completely a different ball game to analytics. So that's the second road which I found in rhetoric and design. Yeah. That story has changed a lot of people's lives. I mean, you know, very very senior people have been hugely impacted by that story.
1: Well, the way I the way I see this affecting your spirituality too is that for you uh Christianity is not this is not this analytical thing to be figured out but it's an ongoing expression it's not it's not closed it's more of an endless an endless kind of thing where there's all these possibilities for expression beauty and wonder and so it really it 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 in it's a very inviting way it makes you want to it's not something just to be figured out it's it's this ongoing Ever deepening, enriching Absolutely experience. True. You've said it
2: very well. And um, the analytic tradition, unfortunately, by the way, the reformed movement, Calvin and so on—you uh, know—I can trace it through. I mean, they they they, they had a choice. They, they, they went down that analytic first road. You know, if, you, if I look at most theology, it's very analytic, propositional. Whereas, I—I mm-hmm. um, I don't think we've got a choice about this because I actually went back to. Genesis myself, and I mean, I ask a provocative question. I say, What has it ever occurred to you, God might be bored by obedience? I say that to shock people. I hope everyone's a little bit shocked. And I say, Well, look, because let me just play it out a little bit. It's a mind game. Like, uh, you've got kids, your kid now is 25, and every morning the kid comes to you and says, Dad, what do you want me to do today? Would you find that, uh, like, not just boring, but irritating? So, yeah, I probably would. Yeah. Um, Well, what if god has a bigger agenda than just obedience what if his agenda is that we would expand creatively as sub creators his agenda and uh the the so-called obedience is just kind of a prelude to a life of of creation we are sub creators and that's what i think hebrews 2 which is one of the most important chapters in the bible much neglected i want to write a book on hebrews because i think it's it's the vastly important book and Almost nobody talks about it. He picks up Psalm 8, Psalm 8 picks up Genesis 1, Why have you created man? God created man to extend his agenda into the cosmos as sub-creators. I don't think we have a choice about it. So, so with that in mind, of course, when I discovered the, the you know, design and design thinking and creativity, um, I think I'm now on holy ground here.
1: We're getting to we're getting to a point now. Where we've been going a while, and I think people are getting a pretty good idea of of your journey and and the kind of inquisitiveness that's going on in gospel conversations. It's a wide ranging it's a wide ranging conversation, and it's not just it's not just restricted to the idea of Christianity and universal salvation. But that's what this podcast is is really is really focused on. So what I'd like to do. Is, uh, is go to uh, have another, uh, another talk with you. And let's just really focus then, then on this question of, of universal salvation or cosmic uh, redemption and talk about that and talk about that some more. Yeah, I'd, love be okay? that. I'd love to do that.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.